Welcome back, history fans. This is Mr. McEwen with another World History Audio Podcast. So today we are going to be talking about Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, last time we went over the French Revolution. And towards the end of the French Revolution, Napoleon Bonaparte kind of kind of came into his own. And we're going to see a little overlap here. So this is just, figure this as an extension of the French Revolution. So let's get going with Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, early life, he was born in Corsica, France, which is this little island. And, you know, he was... Um, he was teased a lot about his Corsican accent. Um, so kind of view him as a bit of an outcast, a bit of a nerd, didn't exactly fit in a whole bunch. So um, anyhow, he was educated in a French military school at the age of nine. Um, and since he was a bit of an outcast, he spent a lot of his time studying and getting better at his craft, if you will. So uh, graduated from the military school in 1784, and then he went on to the École Militaire, and that's basically a school for training military officers. So uh, he originally was thinking about going into the Navy, but eventually specialized in artillery, and he actually graduated in one year instead of the standard of two. Now that mil the artillery thing, we're going to talk more about that later, but uh, basically think of him as being in charge of the cannons, where to fire them from, uh, you know, the angles that you have to uh, angle them at in order to get the proper distance and so forth. So we'll revisit that a little bit later on. So um, after military school, he was all about the cause of uh, the causes of the revolution. So he joined the revolution, became a lieutenant colonel in the army, and um, his kind of his first claim to fame was in the city of Toulon, uh, which was um, actually like a harbor city. So we're looking on the water here, and so the British attacked this harbor. And since Napoleon was this expert in artillery, he found the perfect spot to set up his giant artillery cannon guns. Um, that allowed him to attack the British, but it was very difficult for the British to attack him. So this eventually, the, the ships had to leave, and he claimed victory. Well, after this, um, some people started to take notice. So not just the people, but two specific groups. The Committee of Public Safety, which you hopefully remember from French Revolution. So they saw him and were like, wow, this guy looks like he knows what he's doing. So let's promote him to Brigadier General. Um, the Directory, uh, which was that new government of the time, they looked at him and said, hey, this guy knows what's up. So they eventually put him uh, in charge of the Army of Italy, which means they were going to go take control of Italy. And two days before leaving for Italy to take over, he married, I'm sorry about my lack of pronunciation for France, um, but two days before leaving, he married Josephine de Bucharest. I'm sorry, I'm just going to call her Josephine for the most part. Just give you a little background of Josephine. Uh, she was originally, another French name here, I'm not going to have, tro I'm going to have trouble with, originally married Alexandra Victimette de Bujarnes. And it was not a very happy marriage. They did have two children. Um, Alexandra, her husband, uh, was captured and guillotined during the Reign of Terror. And as a widow, she was a mistress to many political officials, including Napoleon. So she met Napoleon and fell madly in love with, uh, with one another. Um, until meeting Bonaparte, though, this is kind of weird, she had always been called Rose. Um, and 
kind of weird. He didn't like calling her this. So he just disliked the name, so he started calling her Josephine. So she adopted from then on. So kind of weird. She just, anyhow, changed her name for him. Well, here's a little description of Josephine throughout history. Described as being of average height, shapely with silky dark chestnut hair, hazel eyes, and a rather sallow complexion. Her nose was small and straight, and her mouth was well-formed. However, she kept it closed most of the time so as not to reveal her bad teeth. So, anyhow, kind of interesting little thing there. So, anyhow, back to Napoleon in Italy. So, Napoleon went to Italy. He conquered Italy. However, he refused to dethrone the Pope as the Directory had ordered him to do. So here we have the government of the day, kind of. I mean, they're still early governments and revolution and so forth. A lot of not the most strength here. But they told him to do something, and he said, yep, not going to do it. And he did that all under his own authority. So we start to see him kind of puffing up his chest here. So... Then Napoleon started peace negotiations with Austria, um, reminding he is a general, no authorization to do any of this. Um, so upon his return home, he was greeted as a hero. So people were like, this guy's awesome. So next, he has now taken over Italy. He has negotiated with Austria, and now he's looking at Egypt. So he basically says, I'm going to go into Egypt and protect all of our trading interests and also mess up the British interests and trade routes to India. So when he went there, kind of, I guess, ahead of his time thinking about this, he brought with him soldiers, of course, but he also brought with him scientists and archaeologists to study the Egyptian culture and some of the uh, older stuff that's there. And kind of, kind of neat and interesting. And he discovered something, or his people discovered something. Um, while there, they discovered the Rosetta Stone, uh, which is famous for having three different languages on it and basically allowed us to understand um, uh, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs because it was the same message written three times. Um, so the two languages we didn't know were the uh, Egyptian language and the Greek, I'm sorry, two Egyptian languages and a Greek language. So um, because of understanding Greek, we were able to understand the Egyptian. So kind of interesting. All right, so on his way, uh, to Egypt, sorry, backtracking just a shade here, um, he landed in the city of Malta on Island One, and they gave him safe harbor and supplies, and once he was in this harbor and he got all of his supplies, he said, thanks so much, turned his guns, and basically stabbed these people in the back. So, thanks, but no thanks, I guess. Didn't have to pay after that. So, now that we're in Egypt, we're going to talk about the Battle of Chobani, bracket against the Mamluks. I'm sorry about my pronunciation. So the French were outnumbered uh, three to one here, 60,000 to 20,000. But Napoleon, um, you know, he was, and a lot of people look back on him today and think, man, this guy was just a brilliant military strategist. And one of the things he did was use these like square formations. He kept the supplies in the center of these great squares and more on the defensive for him. And the Mamluks would charge in on horseback and running towards them, and they would all hold formation and would take turns shooting in order to maximize that they were constantly able to shoot, not having you know that slow reload time. And it was just wonderful strategy. And the Mamluks, you know, they were very wealthy, most of them, and they would like come running into battle and start throwing coins to try to distract them. It didn't work too well. Um, anyhow... Um, Napoleon eventually 
did win out kind of thing. So uh, 300 French had passed away and died in this battle, and approximately 6,000 of these Egyptian Mamluks were killed. Um, so we look at this as a win for the French army. However, that being said, while Napoleon was fighting on land, um, his support, supply, and transport ships were destroyed by the British. So uh, Napoleon was like, well, I, I guess since this battle and campaign in general is kind of stagnant, not winning, not losing, and there was some instability back in France, he decided to leave Egypt, and he left this general clever in charge. And um, So now that he's heading back to France, in 1799, he installed a, uh, or carries out a coup d'etat. And a coup d'etat is a military takeover of the government. So the military people just oust the government and be like, we're in charge now. So once back in France, he and several other military officials decided to take over the government. And so now that he is in charge, he calls this new government a consulate. And the consulate loosely translates to definition time, basically a small group ruling. And it was a public, which, you know, kind of democratic, but Napoleon had absolute power. So that kind of changes from a republic to a dictatorship. And he was named Consul for Life in 1803. And Consul, definition time again, an official appointment by the government of one country to look after its commercial interests and welfare of its citizens in another country, or in other countries in general. So, he's basically the dictator. He, he manages everything with all the other countries around the world. And he crowned himself emperor in 1804. So now that he has all this power, he starts to kind of take care of the education system, so he kind of like makes everything controlled by the state as far as education goes. He takes over the taxation system and really starts to set up all that. Uh, the banking system, a central banking system, um, he starts going over codes and laws to make sure everyone is unified, and he also works on roads and sewer system. So, I mean, he's actually doing a lot for the infrastructure of France, which at this point was in a lot of disarray after the French Revolution. So, I mean, he... He definitely is doing things his way, but at the same time, I mean, it's not all bad. And a lot of the French citizens actually respond very highly to him. They like him a lot. So, and if you remember, at the end of the revolution, um, the church and the revolution did not exactly get along. Um, the land was taken from the church. Enlightenment ideas had picked apart the church. Suffice it to say, the church and the revolution were not best friends. So Napoleon comes in and he says, look, let's make a deal here. Uh, we'll make Catholicism the main religion of France. But all the land we took during the revolution, yeah, we're still going to keep that land. So he's kind of making amends with some of, the, um, some of the groups, but still keeping a lot of his power too at the same time. So let's move on. We're going to talk about the Napoleonic Laws. And I kind of mentioned this briefly here. So the codification of the laws, basically compiling and bringing together the laws, making it kind of unified for the entire country. So he made, different, made several different codes of law. And probably the most important of these codes of law was the Civil Code, also known as the, the Napoleonic Code. And just to give you a little idea of the Napoleonic Code, it preserved the rights of the revolution, meaning equality under the law, everyone's equal, the right to choose your own profession, so not just because you're born into higher society, uh, religious toleration, you can be whatever religion you want, officially Catholicism, but still, you can be whatever religion you want, a lot of freedom there, 
abolition of the feudalism system and serfdom. So no longer are we going to have the serfs and the, the people that are kept lower than others and don't have the same rights. So that was a big issue for the French Revolution to start and everything. Property rights were protected under the law. So your land was, was your land to own. Um, the interest of employers were safeguarded. So um, this one may be a little bit of a setback for the employees because it outlawed unions and outlawed strikes. Um, and we'll get more into these unions and strikes in our next unit of industrialization. Um, so just kind of hold tight with those if you have any questions. Um, his administration, also known as the consulate, um, was very centralized and small based on a definition that makes sense. Officials got positions based on ability, not birthright so, or class, which was very nice. Um, and his government, I guess you could kind of consider him a despot or a practicing despotism, which means absolute power or control, also known as tyranny. And just to give you a little idea of this absolute power and control, he shut down 60 out of 73 of the newspapers. And the idea of doing this was the ones that were open were under his control. So he controlled what they published and the people it went out to. So he controlled the information that was presented to the people. Um, he would also make a practice, and I say he, I mean his administration, would open and read people's mail uh, to make sure that people were not planning things like, say, another revolution. Um, and so kind of a kind of interesting, maybe some even some ties to today in different countries around the world a little bit, so kind of interesting there. Moving on, uh, military. He saw a need for peace. This won't go on for long. So remember, wars going on at the end of the revolution. He got his claim to fame by fighting a lot of war. So he decides that he's going to start signing peace treaties and, you know, let's, let's just focus on things back home. War is bad, you know, and so forth. Well, that was in 1802 that peace treaties were signed. Well, he waited a whole year and resumed war with Britain, Austria, Russia, Sweden, and Prussia. So from 1805 to 1807, France defeated Austrian, Prussian, and Russian armies in Europe. So he's not done fighting with these guys, but he's basically taking over Europe. So he set up this thing called the Grand Empire, and this consisted of three parts. The first part being the French Empire, which was France. So that's like number one. All right, number two here, the dependent states. These are kingdoms that he has basically conquered and put his relatives in control of. So they depend on France. That's how I remember it. French Empire, dependent states on the French Empire. And then finally, number three, the allied states. And these are conquered states that Napoleon has basically forced to join his empire. So... We beat you. I'm not putting my relatives in charge, but I'm keeping an eye on you, so you're going to join us. So they have been forcibly, forcibly allied with the French Empire. So anyhow, we're, we're building up the, the French Empire. Napoleon is rising to power very quickly, taking over, killing all kinds of people and enslaving and so forth and all this stuff. Well, all of those things can't last forever. So we start to see the downfall of Napoleon. And this is going to be stretched out a little bit here. I don't you know, want you to think this is going to be like a quick thing, but in relative years of history and so forth, it is fairly quick. So the informal downfalls are going to, we're going to talk specifically about Britain and nationalism. So let's talk about Britain first. All right. Napoleon did not like Britain and he was never able to actually attack mainland Britain. And the reason he had so much trouble with this it's because Britain is an island nation, okay? So 
one, you got to get there with boats. Okay, and that being said, Britain has the Royal Navy, so they got a pretty good fleet to protect themselves as well. So if you can't actually go after them um, physically and actually attack them, um, because obviously your boats are going to get killed, you can't get troops out to the land, so Napoleon had to find another way to attack them. And he used this thing called the Continental System. So basically what it comes down to is it, it's a, a trade embargo. Uh, he asked slash forced other countries not to trade with with anything that had to do with Britain. So if they're an island nation and they can't trade with other countries, they're going to lose money, they're going to probably lose a lot of goods, food, services, and all these things, and eventually they're going to fall apart because he's cutting off uh, all their supplies, all the roots that go to this giant tree. So, um, you know, kind of think of it like today, a lot of countries boycott North Korea, um, they don't trade with them, and Cuba, we have a trade embargo with Cuba, um, so maybe kind of an example of that today. Well, sadly, this didn't work. Uh, I mean, maybe to some extent, some countries under his control did not, you know, they obeyed the continental system, but other people still bought goods from them. Um, Britain just decided to trade even further away, maybe not directly with Europe. They could go all the way to the Middle East and Latin America. They had, like I said, they had a lot of boats and stuff. They could go places. Um, so uh, the continental system failed. I mean, that was, and he thought that that would be a big way to kind of just slowly weaken them and maybe eventually attack them. All right, and if you remember, the other downfall I talked about was, the, uh, was nationalism. And definition time for it is the unique cultural identity of people based on common language, religion, and national symbols. All right, basically, the definition for this one, uh, seeing yourself as part of a country and having pride in it. So, I mean, hey, how on earth could nationalism hurt France? All right. The people in France had a lot of nationalism. I mean, they loved, you know, Napoleon being French and so forth. Well, it wasn't them having nationalism that hurt them. Um, you know, it, let's see. Let they, it hurt them because the French were all together, and they were viewed as like a common enemy. So the French were hated as oppressors. Remember that dependent states and the allied states, they went in and they oppressed all these other people. And so they kind of, the French acted a little better than everyone else, like we are the French Empire. And because of this, it stirred patriotism and nationalism in their enemies. So it allowed the rest of the world to kind of unite together under a common enemy or common hatred. Um, and the, the other way that the French nationalism kind of hurt the French is the French became an example of what nationalism could do. Um, so the French were like, you know, they, they had they had come together as a country, they had started a revolution, and they overthrew their oppressors. So the message from the French kind of jokingly became, look what we can do, look how easy it is, we did it, but oh yeah, please, don't, don't do that to us. So anyhow, that's just kind of a, a little interesting there. So now those were the two informal downfalls of... Napoleon. And we're going to get into a more formal downfall of Napoleon, and that was a military downfall, and that is the invasion of Russia. So I'm going to stop there with this one, because it looks like we're getting to about the 20-minute mark, and I just have a little bit left, so we'll do a little bit smaller of a podcast here for the next one. So uh, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me. Otherwise, we'll pick up with the military downfall of Napoleon with his invasion of Russia. <laughs>